0: The title of this message is Discerning the Call. We first of all want to consider why it is so important that we have a right understanding of the missionary call. And this is a very crucial topic uh, if we are to respond to, to, God, to Christ's commission to take the gospel to the nations. If we're to see men and women uh, go out and... Uh, be involved in the work of missions, if we're to see men called to cross-cultural uh, church planting in our churches, we uh, must really get this issue of, of the notion of the missionary call uh, right. Uh, there is a problem in our Christian circles in general understanding uh, the whole concept of the missionary call. Eric Wright in his Practical Theology of Mission, says this, Whenever people talk about who should serve as missionaries, the need for a clear sense of divine call is usually mentioned most frequently. The importance of the call has been exaggerated to such an extent that many look for some mystical experience mirroring that of Gideon, Isaiah, or Saul. There is a sense in which this traditional approach to the call of God has not served us well. I would go even farther, perhaps, than Eric Wright in saying that we've pushed things farther than uh, than just uh, understanding it as an experience that would mirror Isaiah. Uh, at least in Isaiah's case, uh, there was room for Isaiah to respond to hearing the Lord say, Who will go for us and whom shall we send? And Isaiah was able to respond, Here I am, send me. And some of our circles There's no room for that, Uh, that sort of human uh, part or human responsibility, or uh, no one would even feel justified in in considering a call unless the lightning struck him and uh, and God spoke to him in some incredibly obvious way about going to the mission field. But uh, to give you... uh, in illustration of what I mean about the problem with our understanding of what we, what we call the missionary call, consider this. In the 1700s, there was only one Christian group that was really, um, in any significant way, uh, taking the gospel to the unreached, and that was the Moravians. At that time, the Moravians were sending out one missionary for every 60 members of their churches at home. At the same time, in the 1700s, in the rest of Protestantism, uh, there was one missionary being sent out for every 5,000 members at home. And the question is, do we really think that God was calling the, mission, the Moravians to do 90 percent of the work of uh, taking the gospel to the unreached during the 1700s. Of course not. Uh, Something was going wrong in the understanding of the rest of Protestantism uh, about missions in such a way that um, the call was there, but it was not being heard. And uh, so we must... uh, We must understand uh, this issue of the call. The second point uh, is to whom does God direct his missionary call? And now we're going to get into the actual issue of the idea of God's leading someone to uh, the work of cross-cultural missions. To whom does God direct his missionary call? The first point we want to make, and this is little point A on on your notes, is that God directs his missionary call not first of all to individual Christians saying go, but to local churches saying send. And we'll just turn to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we read the following. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Many and a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The first thing that we notice in this passage is that the Holy Spirit did not speak to the missionaries themselves, but to the local church. His imperative was not the word go addressed to Barnabas and Saul his imperative was set apart addressed to the local church at Antioch and one thing that we can learn by this is uh, and in addition to that the fact that uh, the church we see here was is fasting and praying now from the rest of the new testament we Understand that when uh, people are fasting, it's not an ordinary thing. There's no, uh, they don't do it for no reason at all. When there's fasting and praying, especially collective fasting and praying, it's because there's some critical or crucial issue that concerns the people of God. Now, what would that be in the context of the Book of Acts for this local church in the city of Antioch? Well. Uh, we know that the one great, crucial, and critical issue that was facing this local church was the fact that for the first time the gospel was going out to, uh, to non-Jews in such a way that they were being converted and added, added to the church in significant numbers and without uh, any uh, requirement of being uh, circumcised or, or having any Jewish background already or being proselytes or any such thing. These people are simply being brought to faith and brought to salvation and born again uh, through the preaching of the gospel of free, free grace through Christ. And it's obvious that in the context the praying and the fasting was the concern of the church. What is happening? This is totally new. Is this right? How far do we push this? And what about Paul's telling us that when the Lord converted him on the Damascus Road that he was to take the gospel to the non-Jewish nations, to the Gentiles? How far does this go? Uh, And it seems almost certain that it was this issue of, of mission uh, of the outreach of the gospel now to the Gentiles that was concerning and, and um, uh, taking the attention of uh, the, the church leaders in Antioch. And so that it was uh, the call came in the midst of prayer by the local church trying to do something about. Uh, reaching the Gentiles and we could almost say that uh, well uh, certainly what we need to see is that the local church is completely involved in this process of the missionary call. The missionary call is not something individualistic that comes from heaven like lightning down upon the head of an individual who's to be a missionary and it happens between God, between Jesus and me. No, no, we see that it's something in which the local church is uh, very, uh, very much in the front line. Uh, We should not say that um, uh, as pastors in the states, if we are such, we should not say something like, well, I don't have a missionary call, but so and so. The truth is, as we see in this passage, that the missionary call is on all of us. Every one of our local churches, we have received the great commission of Christ, and that is the missionary call. We are to reach the nations. And this means that we are to do something about sending. We are to do something about creating a missionary culture so that men will be able to hear of the need and to, uh, to, to sense the leading of the Lord uh, in into the work of cross-cultural evangelism and church planting. All of our local churches should be praying about the issue of sending men, uh, seeking opportunity to uh, practice cross-cultural evangelism in our own town, as they were in Antioch, and even approaching men and saying, uh, well, what about the possibility of, of missions? Uh, How many of you men approached folks in your church about different ministries? You see gifts and qualities in someone, and eventually the elders decide to approach him or her and say, uh, would you be willing to pray about the possibility of being involved in the Sunday school program? But have any of you ever done this concerning missions? Have you approached anyone who seemed to really have, uh, who had exercised teaching and preaching gifts in the church, who was a godly uh, man, uh, who perhaps had even developed uh, cross-cultural friendships with people from other countries in the community and had even perhaps um, success in in speaking to them of Christ and gone to him and said, uh, have you thought about missions? Well, certainly I think this is part of what uh, we should be doing because the missionary call does not come to the missionary First of all, it comes to the local church as an imperative that says, "You should be doing something about sending men, about creating a culture in which they will consider the possibility of going to the mission field." Well, they would intuitively think of it as a, first of all, a collective reality that's, that's going to, to happen and, and be given by God in the, in the collective body. Uh, and through them. But, uh, but we're, we're, really, we're really off on this, I think, because of our Western individualism and because we've taken uh, part of Acts 13 out and, and uh, an extraordinary call that happened to someone somewhere and we've wanted that to be a universal pattern, which we, we just can't do that. Um, <clears throat> let me... Let me give you one more bit of uh, scriptural data on this idea before I move on. And, And that is simply that if we move away from Paul and Barnabas and we think about Timothy and Silas, then we've got to start asking some questions. Now, why did Timothy go to the mission field? Did the Lord speak in a meeting and say, Set apart for me, Timothy? No. Let's read in Acts 16, verses 1 to 3. And here we get the ordinary, a more ordinary call. <clears throat> Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So he had a ministry going on in two churches already. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Not Timothy wanted or anything like that. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him. That's how Paul got to the mission field. Now, we remember that Timothy was a fearful man. Timothy might have had a burden for seeing. People reached beyond his local uh, context, but he was probably, probably the sort of guy who would have never thought that he would be the one to do it. And uh, he did it because someone else came to him. He'd, he had the gifts, he had the spiritual qualities, someone was needed. And Paul said, Would you go with me? Isn't it? Isn't that quite amazing? For a lot of us, in our mystical view of the call, we go, "No, this, you can't do that. He didn't have a, a whatever." <laughs> you know But the same thing: when the dispute happens between Paul and Barnabas and they separate, Paul takes Silas, and he's, Paul and Silas are commended to the grace of God by the, the church at Antioch. But we see no, no special um, providence uh, or, or sign from God that said to Silas or Timothy that, that they must go. There was someone needed to go. These men were qualified. Uh, they, they certainly were not averse to going because we'll see in a moment that uh, no one can be forced into missions. But, but what I'm saying is that, that uh, probably we need to see the local church and its part in in the the grooming and the encouraging, one one example, I think in our local churches often we do something like this. We we see someone that has gifts and, and a, a godly life, and um, we've we've seen them encourage others in certain circumstances, and we the elders go up to him or her or, or her and could could you uh, could you consider. Uh, and pray about the possibility of helping out in a Sunday school. Don't we do that? We've never done that, but we're, we're glad to encourage someone to a new sort of opportunity in ministry and see see if it works out. Now, has anyone in your local church ever done that to someone on missions, brother? You know, you've taught in the church, you've preached, you've won people to Christ. You have these, you have you even have these um, friendships with. Non-Americans in our... Have you ever thought about missions? I, th- I think that's part of the call that's on us. And if we're not doing it, I believe that we're, we're certainly not Paul who goes to Timothy and says, Hey, would you think about missions? Paul did it. So, the missionary call involves the local church in a way that perhaps we haven't thought enough about. B. I'm still uh, where am I? I'm still on point two B. God's missionary call is secondarily a call that impels specific Christians to go. Now, Paul didn't come to Iconium and say, "Is there anybody that wants to go with me on the mission, on the missionary trip here? I'll take you." It doesn't matter who comes, you know, as long as you're a guy, maybe. Or no, he didn't do that. He went to Timothy. Uh, there were reasons. There were there were qualities. There were there were specific men who had been prepared for this sort of task by God that were apt, that were the sort of person that could do it, and that was that was by the grace of God. Um, I, I don't want to get too far into how Timothy might have might have come to the conclusion that he should go because we're coming to that. But all I want to say at this point is that though this comes, uh, there is a responsibility of the local church. Something's happening with individuals also. I can totally agree. And when you get out on the mission field, if you don't have any sense that God has somehow led you here, when the going gets tough, you're leaving. You're not going to be there long. So there has to be some sense that God, God has led in this thing. Um, I want to give you one example from 1 Corinthians 16, 12, which is, which is quite a surprising verse in some ways. Um, Paul, Paul says this. He says, Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. Now, remember, Apollos is a traveling missionary. That's all, that's all he is. We see him in different places, and he's, he's, he's doing church planting. Now, Paul the Apostle says... In, this, in our mission work, you need, to, you need to go over here. I strongly urge you. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So you see, there's something individual, isn't there? We, we can't force a man to go who who's really doesn't have something that's happened between him and God to ready him and to, to make his heart willing to go and wanting to go. So there obviously is that factor, isn't there? Uh, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 16:7, 16:12. But it is interesting that even the apostles, being convinced of something, doesn't mean it's God's will for Apollos. And the way sometimes we have to decide between these things, God didn't give a prophecy and say, "Hey, Paul's right, Apollos, head out, buddy." God didn't say anything by anyone. They had to decide through biblical wisdom. And Apollo said, thank you for your encouragement. I don't think it's the wisest right now. So that we see in ordinarily in missions and missions activity, we are guided by prayerful biblical wisdom and not signs. And not uh, even special providences are, are not enough. God uses them, but they're not enough. Uh, Unfortunately, providential events, no matter how spectacular they are, are not like sardines, and that's the problem. Sardines come with a key to open them, right? And God's providence does not come with a key so that you can interpret it and say, this means that. You know, the lightning strikes the steeple, and one guy says, that means God wants us to move out of the city into the suburbs. And the other guy says, no, 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 that means that God is... Upset with us for not doing enough evangelism. The other guy says, "No, uh, it's just Satan trying to hinder us from from what we're doing here because we're doing so good." You know, you see, there's no key to. It's a providential of, uh, event, but it doesn't come with a ready-made interpretation. You know, so so uh, even when we see in Second Corinthians uh, chapter two that God says to Paul, "I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get in this, but I'll get back on track here." Uh, In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. God himself opened a door to preach the gospel, and I didn't take the open door. Does that kind of blow your idea of guidance out the door? I think. It puts a few holes in it, doesn't it, you know? Hmm, okay. Even an open door does not necessarily have to be taken. Nor does a closed door have to keep us out. Sometimes we we kick, we push it hard, and it opens. So, normally we're going to be led in the missionary call by prayerful biblical wisdom, and we're going to say exactly what that means in a moment. Okay, the last thing uh, in this... uh, Setting the context uh, is that God's missionary call is one that moves different types of workers to go out to foreign fields. I don't want to stay on this, uh, but I do, I do want to say it. The story of the evangelization of the Roman Empire in the New Testament is not the story of God calling and sending one type of worker, male missionary church planters. It's not. If you read your Bible, you see that Paul was accompanied by a hundred people. A hundred people. Twenty eight of them he called his co-workers. And many of them were women. And a lot of them, I'm sure, weren't preachers. This is the way God accomplished missions in the New Testament. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Who accompanied Paul? Barnabas, Timothy, John Mark, Silas, Titus, Luke, Apollos, Demas for a while, Epaphras, Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Mary, Persis, Aphia, Eudolia, Syntyche, and on and on and on. And he calls some of these women his co-workers in the Lord. I want to mention one type of worker that's not a missionary church planter, but I think our churches have got to get back on the bandwagon with this. Paul first met this couple in Corinth. Husband and wife gave Paul a job making tents because they were laymen. They weren't full-time Christian workers. A and P, we'll call them. Aquila and Priscilla. They, Paul moves on to Ephesus and he says, You guys can make tents anywhere. Why don't you move to Ephesus? And they move to Ephesus to help him out. But they stay as laymen. Paul leaves and they stay there at Ephesus in the church plan and they're working and along comes this guy named Apollos and he's preaching and he's a good preacher except he's not Reformed Baptist in his doctrine. So they have to talk to him, (laughs) help him out a little bit. And uh, uh, three years later, Paul comes back to Ephesus and he stays a long time church planting. By that time, the church is in Aquila and Priscilla's house. Because we read that the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now that's an epistle sent back to the Corinthians, where Aquila and Priscilla were at first when Paul met them. They were actually from Rome. They got kicked out by Claudius. But Rome, Corinth, Ephesus. Now they're about a thousand miles away from their house in Rome. And then the next thing we read is that Paul is writing to the church at Rome years later, and Aquila and Priscilla are back in Rome. And Paul says, "Greet speaking to the church at Rome, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well." Layman couple. Vital part of missions saved the church planter's life one time. Church plant church planted in Corinth, Ephesus, helped out in Rome. We had an American family uh, in our church plant in Grenoble. They, uh, the man worked for uh, Hewitt Pack- Packard, a uh, computer company. I think that's how you say it. Anyway. Uh, and he could do that a lot of places. They have factories uh, all over the world. And, and they were really burdened to do something to help out in missions. Very godly, missions mighty couple. And they found out that uh, the, this computer firm had a big factory, in fact, more than one in France. So they moved to France, three children, didn't speak any French, got there, learned, learned French, become a vital part of our church plant. And now uh, one of their uh, sons is one of the preachers in the Grenoble Church. So he's married and he's living in France. They've gone back to the States, but they've left us their young men. And uh, this is something that we should tell our churches about. You don't have to be a full-time supported person to, to leave and go and help in missions. There are churches in different places that, could, that would love to have a layman, preferably with a good salary, like this guy had. I'm serious. It was a great help to the church plant. <laughs> But a godly person who would make friends and learn the language and, and integrate into the culture, this, is, this too is part, of the mission, of, is part of missions if we read the New Testament right. Well, now I want to leave that sort of worker uh, and, and talk mainly about the called servant, uh, the, the missionary uh, evangelist and church planter now, and, and his call, discerning that call. We're on number three. What factors does God use to lead people to the work of missions, this this sort of person? And some of the principles will apply to the others, other such, sorts of workers also. First of all, the way God normally guides people to missions is not the architect uh, method of guidance. The architect method is you're building a house and... Uh, You've got to put a window in, but you can't put a window in until you go back, you look and look on the plan, you say, okay, it's there, it's four feet up, it's right next to that door, and then you can put it in. But you have to be sure, you have to have an assured knowledge that there must be a window in that place, and you knock a hole in the wall there. Evangelicals often want that sort of guidance. They want God by a variety, a combination of signs and providence and inner feelings to give them an assured knowledge, God's called me to missions. Uh, but that is not the way uh, guidance, the, the missionary call ordinarily works. Uh, if I speak for myself, it's more, it's, it's more a thing of... Um, Uh, a conviction, a need, and we're going to see these factors. It's more like, no, we've got to put a window somewhere in this wall. There's a need there. And where would it be wise to put that window? Well, this would probably be the best place. And, you know, we add a spiritual level, we pray about it too, and et cetera, et cetera. But then you go ahead and say, okay, let's put the window in here. And then later on, you find out that that's exactly where the architect actually wanted it. But I didn't know when I left to go to the mission field. We know God's hidden providential will once it happens. We don't get to know it beforehand. We know God's moral will. We can see that plan. But we can't see God's hidden providential will of decree and go check it and say, yeah, I was supposed to go to the mission field. So what sort of knowledge do we go to the mission field with? Not the sort of knowledge by which I've seen in a revealed, clear, no-question manner, but the sort of knowledge in which God gives us burden and desire and wisdom, and together with the church, we see that uh, we see that this is this can be done, and this is the sort of person that can do it, and He wants to do it. So let's look at that now more closely. <clears throat> I want to give you. Uh, Five factors, and the first factor is burden. What I did in preparing was I I read through, apart from the Scriptures, I I read through the biographies of a number of well-known missionaries, and I looked at the chapter about their call, about how did they ever come to the conclusion that they were to go into missions. And I saw that across the board, but really across the board, there were five factors that were present. Okay? The first one was burden. Um, and this is where we, as local churches, must play a part in informing and, and helping the folks in our church to know constantly before them. There are over 800 peoples in the world that are untargeted. There are many more than that that are unreached. Um, and we're talking about somewhere around a third of the population of the world live in a situation in which there is no access to Christianity in their language and their culture and their geographical sphere. There's just no way for them to get the gospel as things stand now. And they they will be born and live and die and perish. That's the way it is. And we have to tell our churches this. we're We're not dealing with anything less than this. And we're dealing with, Depends on who you talk to, but we're dealing with well over a billion people in the world today. Adoniram Judson was deeply stirred by finding out things like this. He read a printed sermon describing missionary efforts in India. So he began to read everything that he could get about India, about China, and about the Golden Kingdom, which we now call Myanmar, which used to be called Burma. He was amazed at how little Christians seemed to be concerned that all of these people were perishing and that someone could go to them and tell them of Christ. And he said this, How do Christians discharge the trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them. Content if they can be useful in the little circle of their acquaintances, they quietly sit and see whole nations perish for lack of knowledge. That's a factor that led Adonai and Judson to go to the mission field. And every one of the missionaries that I read, somewhere along the way you become alive and awake to, the, to this terrible reality. Now, obviously, there have to be other factors or you would all go at the end of this message or the other <laughs> messages you're hearing, right? Uh, so there are other factors. But I want to urge you to do one thing. if this, There's a sinful response that we have if, we're, if we feel or know somehow that we're not to go to other countries. When we, when we hear about this, these, these lost people, the unreached, we sort of classify this, yeah, but I can't go. And I know that I'm not to go. There are reasons. I have a relative. I have a mother who's, you know, whatever it is. But instead of doing that, what we should do is take this burden on fully and say, God is calling me to make sure someone goes. Okay? Can we do that? Take this whole burden. Don't lessen it any at all. Let it burn in you and keep on burning. And saying, well, if I'm not going, I better... Very well. Do all I can to make sure that some that I'm going to send someone by God's help and by God's grace. Doug Birdsall is the uh, is the director of the um, Department of Missionary uh, Missions. I think he's at Gordon Conwell. At least he was he was a student at Gordon Conwell. And he eventually went to Japan for 25 years as a a missionary. And here's how it happened. In his last year of studies, he postulated for a pastoral post somewhere in Pennsylvania. Somewhere along the line, he learned that 29 other young men had postulated for that post. And he began to think to himself, if I don't go there, if, if they offered it to me and I didn't go, there's 29 other men. Just ready to do that job, and yet there are all these places out there that nobody wants to go. Nobody's willing to go there. And so he thought of an illustration that one of his missions professors had given. He said, "Now imagine ten men that are outside carrying a very, very heavy log, and and you're asked go out there and help these guys. They need help." And you get outside and you notice, to your surprise, that nine fellows are on one side of the log and one fellow is on the other side. Now, which side of the log would you go to? Would you ask for a sign? Really? Well, you would take very seriously the, the need to probably go to the other end if you could. Now, that's too simple uh, uh, an issue to compare directly to missions. Right, or else again, we would all go. But, but we must feel the weight of that, that reality, that burden, uh, and we must make it felt in our churches. And that's when we will see people called to missionary work. Theophilus Dodds was the son-in-law of Horatius Bonar. He was a missionary in France. Did you know Horatius Bonar's daughter was a missionary in France? She was. Theophilus Dodds had a wonderful career of about four or five years, and he died because of eating the wrong sort of mushroom in France. In a time of awakening, a wonderful biography written of him by his father-in-law, he said this, you know, He's writing his family. You know I have long felt drawn to the mission field. It has been a lifelong cherished desire. I never had any distinct attraction to stay at home. And the feeling becomes stronger the older I grow. Now sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's there from the very beginning. And it just grows. And sometimes it comes later. I'd like to ask someone like our brother Andy Hamilton, tell tell us about your burden. And maybe he'll say, in the beginning years I didn't think much about overseas missions, but then something happened and this began to grow on me. But the burden is an essential factor in the call. So we see our responsibility as pastors, don't we? Second of all is command. I noticed that in these missionaries' lives, there was a sense of the of the reality of Christ's command that we must reach the nations. We are under orders. And we see this, for example, in the life of John Urquhart, who was one of the St. Andrew Seven. You may have read the Banner book if you haven't. It's a very thrilling book. Now, John Urquhart was one of seven students that began to stir the whole Christian community uh, about the issue of missions. And he actually died before he could go. And others went in his place. But Urquhart said this. He, said, he argued that the only valid mandate for preaching Christ in Britain was Christ's command to make disciples of all nations. Why do you have to go witness to someone out in Cleveland if you live in Cleveland? Well, the only mandate you have is Christ's command in Matthew 28 and the other parallel commands to make disciples of all nations, Right? Well, if that's your mandate for witnessing out here, then how is it that we could witness here and be very concerned and leave all the rest of the nations in such a state? That was his argument. He said, if this is true, why should Britain have such a disproportionate percentage of gospel preachers if the commission and the command is all nations? How comes it that all the laborers should have continued to cluster get together in one little corner of the vineyard? And what does the vast superiority of its claims consist? Why is this area of the vineyard so vastly more important? How can we justify this? James Dilmore was a very uh, fruitful missionary in Mongolia. He said this, and we're talking about how this sense of the command of Christ becomes Impelling. I go out as a missionary that I may obey that command of Christ, go into all the world and preach. He who said preach said also, go ye into and preach, and what Christ hath joined together let not man put asunder. This command seems to me to be strictly a missionary injunction. My going forth is a matter of obedience to a plain command. And in place of seeking to assign a reason for going abroad, I would prefer to say that I have failed to discover any reason why I should stay at home. Well, whatever we see in that, whether we agree or not, we see that that the factor of Christ's command that we must, as a church, reach the world. That's going to be the great great thing that comes to weigh upon the heart of, of folks in our church as they are as led to go out. We could put it this way. If you go to the missionary field, the missions field, and you ask a missionary, now why did you go and not stay? I hope he's going to say, I hope he's going to quote Matthew 28 for one of these passages. I hope he's going to say, Christ said go into the, all the I hope he's not going to say, the reason I went and I didn't stay is one day uh, this happened to me. See, well maybe that was part of the way that God led him, but the reason there must be going is Christ commanded it, not some providential individual experience. And so somehow, if men are ever going to go, the fact that Christ commanded it must come to mean something to us. And it will come to mean something to them if they see that it means something to you, to you pastors. John Milne uh, was a very fruitful pastor uh, among uh, a lot of great pastors in the 1800s in, in Scotland. Uh, if I told you the names of his friends, they would be, oh yeah, I've read his book and I've read his biography. Uh, Milne ended up leaving Perth in a fruitful ministry to go to Calcutta. But to get there, he, he really had to uh, enter into an arm wrestling a battle with his fellow pastors in the Scottish Church. Uh, they just could not see it. And he said this. It finally had to come down to a, to a decision, of a the special meeting in the, in the Synod. And uh, he, he, he said this to them. From your decision on this matter, it will be seen how your heart is affected to that great command, Go ye into all the world. You were sent away, excuse me, You have sent away our brother Grant to Australia, coming to Glasgow, without a single word of objection or disapproval, if you lay an embargo upon me. But no, the thought is absurd. We have too long joined in prayer, in the prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And we see with Milne that that the command of Christ had become... What it should be to us, whether we're going or staying, we know that there must be going. And that's why there is going. The third factor that I saw in the lives of these men was prayer, simply. Um, when a man or a woman begins to have this sense of burden for the unreached and a sense of the, the great imperative of Christ's command, obviously the next thing that's going to happen That enables God to lead him eventually to the mission field is prayer on his part and on the part of of his local church as well. We see that in Acts 13, don't we? This prayer was going on. and, And could we say we believe in the sovereignty of God, but we believe in the responsibility of man? Could we say that that word that came from the Holy Spirit set apart was an answer to prayer? I believe we can. God sovereignly impelled these men to pray and then He answered their prayer by saying, send off these two men. And the world was changed. Henry Venn, the famous missionary statesman, in his memoir, uh, we find that his almost unvarying counsel to those who thought they might have a missionary call was this. <clears throat> he would give um, Proverbs 16.3 Commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. And as he used to, to explain it, thou shalt be guided to the right decision whether affirmative or negative. His, his, in his memoirs, his, his biographer says, this was his nearly constant advice to those who sought to be guided as to whether they had a call to the foreign missionary field, especially if they had passed the flower of their youth or were in positions of usefulness at home. pray, pray. Pray about it. And uh, we can only be guided in this way. Again, Theophilus Dodds, who went to France, said this. He said, are there not so few, so very few going? Is it not the church's first duty, nay privilege, to to spread the gospel abroad? I think he wishes us to pray very often about this. To put it continually as the great matter before his eyes and to ask that we may be guided so certainly by His unerring hand. I am sure God will guide us, but we must not let this assurance be our rest. It is rather in prayer and daily committal of this thing to Him that we shall be guided. Now, how many times in your church's prayer meetings do you pray about men being called out from from the local church? How much is this a matter of, of prayer? We need to be sending, Lord, we want to see you raise up men here and women here. Would you do this? Or such? this brother has a, has a longing for the mission field. Will you guide us, Lord? Will you, will you make the next step clear to us? And so there must be real prayer about these things. Going on to the fourth burden, command, prayer, and aptitude. Proven aptitude. Of course, if it's gotten this far with someone in your church, then you're already looking at their aptitude. You're looking at their gifts and you're looking at their graces. And I won't go into this because in any call to the ministry, you're dealing with much these same things. You, for a church planter, a missionary cross-cultural church planter, you want to see the normal gifts of a pastor and a preacher. You want to see the normal gifts of a church planter, some giftedness in evangelism, an experience in evangelism. John Payton, before he went to South Sea Islands, he was evangelizing in the ghettos of Glasgow with the Glasgow City Mission. Mary Slessor, before she went to Nigeria, she knew how to stand up to the gang thugs in Dundee, working with the Queen Street Mission. James Gilmore, before Mongolia, he did open air services near the railway station in Chess Hunt, Scotland. And in their own modest way, if they're really thinking of the mission field, then there must be something going on in local ministry in these people's lives. Otherwise, how can you know that they could get there and do anything if they haven't done it in their own culture, in their own setting? Leadership gifts and then certain special gifts necessary for cross-cultural ministry. Uh, Certain special qualities, perhaps. There's, In certain cases, there'll have to be a language aptitude. Uh, For certain areas of the world, a strong physical constitution, but not for others. When we come to qualities rather than gifts, you want to see spiritual maturity. And um, as far as cross-cultural work, I would say uh, maybe maybe four special qualities that stand out among others. The first would be tenacity, perseverance. This is, when you, when you read in books about missions and missions leaders and what they say about the qualities that missionaries must have, this stands at the top. Um, five years, six years without a convert. you just got to be stubborn and tenacious. Now, is this person who wants to go, is he persistent and persevering? Secondly, versatility, flexibility. The whole area of cross-cultural adaptation means that if you've got a person who likes things just like this, the accountant mentality, you, he's going to have a hard time when he has to have a whole different view of time, of greetings, of relationships. And so you want to ask, ask the question, is this person versatile, willing to be flexible, to change the, the third would be a certain mental and, and physical toughness. Uh, you know, in some places uh, where we're ministering now in, in Burkina Faso, there no, there's no running water, there's no electricity between sessions when we teach these pastors. Uh, if we have certain needs, uh, you can go out in the bush or, you know, you you, you have to be flexible with these things. Uh, these men are so poor. Burkina Faso is the ninth poorest country in the world. So, so that we might have meat during the week, one of the pastors—they all have to raise crops or take care of herds in order to survive. They're all bi- vocational. One of them killed a cow so that we would have meat, and uh, so we had one mouthful of meat twice a day, one bite of meat, all of us. But the cow had been stripped. And the raw meat was lying there just on a slab of concrete out in the middle of the, uh, the place all afternoon. Flies and everything, you know. And this is just life in Africa. You just, all you do is pray, Lord, help him cook it well, you know. Uh, but there's, there's got to be a certain, you know, a certain toughness, if, especially if you're going into a situation like that. And then the last thing will be a servant attitude, a servant-hearted attitude. Because the missionary's got to be constantly pushing the nationals in front, pushing them in front. And if it's someone who wants to be ambitious and get a name and he wants to be in front of a big crowd, uh, then uh, then he's not the right person for the job. So that's, that's aptitude. Lastly, opportunity. Of course, if the person's got a burden, if Christ's command is is heavy on his heart, if he's praying about this, and if he has the gifts and the, uh, and, the, and the graces needed for cross-cultural work, I would say the last question is Is God providing an opportunity. Um, and by that I mean several things. Does this person have debts that he needs to pay and he can't go or family responsibilities that he really can't leave uh, biblically? Is he free to go? Uh, is his local church leadership in agreement with this sort of ministry? Are they on board and saying yes? We can really see him. We would love to send him uh, to to uh, to the to the overseas field. Is there a needy field that he can go to? Is there an opportunity somewhere that's that's willing to? Uh, there's, a, there's someone inviting him. There's someone saying, yes, you can come here. And uh, if all of those things are present, he's gifted, he's godly, he's the sort of person that makes a good missionary. He has a desire. He feels Christ's command. We've all been praying about this, and this opportunity has, has, has opened up. For goodness sake, send the guy. <laughs> if it's not the thing to do in a couple of years, he'll be back. It's not a sin to fail, is it? More or less, I would say it goes like that. Um, certainly, the Lord is able to close doors uh, and that sort of thing. But um, but using our biblical wisdom when when these sort of things come together, uh, that and I think, and we can discuss it. But that that is all that has constituted a missionary call in the past, in my reading of church history, and that's all I can see in the New Testament for a normal situation like Timothy, Timothy or. Or Silas. I can't see anything beyond that. That's how I ended up going. I can't point to anything but what I've just told you in those five points. Well, I'm going to skip point four. Um, I want to just say quickly something about point five and six, but I'll be very brief and then we'll stop and have discussion. What mindset must I adopt if I become convinced that I should go to the mission field? I think I'm, something must be said about this. Because uh, we get into situations with young men or women that are sometimes complicated and difficult. Um, I've given you a sort of easy situation where all the five are there with no, no doubt anywhere, you know. But sometimes it's not quite like that, and sometimes the opportunities don't open up like we wanted them to. And um, I think that the key mindset is there must be a balance between determination and willingness to yield to God's will. Uh, Determination, uh, because closed doors are sometimes meant to be pushed open. When we um, were being sent off to France, all those five things seemed to be wonderfully in order. We applied for our visa. We were going to do it the easy way. I was being asked by the nationals to do first a year of study at the University of Dijon to get my African French into French French, and uh, a student visa is the easiest to get to France. It's pretty much automatic if you prove that you have the funds for the year, which I had improved, and our visa was refused. We think it's because uh, one of the people at the consulate in Atlanta saw that I was a pastor. She visibly showed disapproval to that when I was turning in the documents. But whatever the case, we had all, we'd moved out of our apartment. We were living with a few weeks, for a few weeks with my parents, all of our things were in these big bins that you, that you send o- overseas. And uh, we said goodbye to everyone. What do we do? So we had some days of troubled, troubled prayer. Lord, have you shut the door on us? In the end, with our elders, we decided to go anyway. Because uh, Americans can go to France for three months on a tourist visa. So we went. And we shipped all our belongings. <laughs> we moved. And... Um, After about six weeks, I started the course at the university, got, uh, asked the director of the department, could you give me a, just a uh, letter attesting that I'm actually a student here and that I'm in the course, Uh, no problem, he gives me, so we head up to London, you can't get a visa for France in France, you can't do that in any country, we head to London and we go to the French Embassy in, in, in London. Uh, I present my case, what I'm asking for, my documents, and he says it's all fine. But you're American. This is the French embassy in London. We only serve British citizens. But wait just a minute. He Goes back and takes my papers, waiting there and praying. He comes back and says, Vous avez vraiment de la chance. Tout le monde est de bonne humeur ce matin. You are really lucky. Everybody's in a great mood this morning. Here, here's your visa. So sometimes closed doors are meant to kick open, to, 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 uh, to trust the Lord that perhaps this is an obstacle and not a closed door. And we do see this in Scripture as well. Um, so that's the determination part of it. The other part is that we've got to be willing to yield to God's will. If, if the door remains closed or if we, if we have to wait longer than we hoped, You know, William Burns was burning to go to China from the time he thought he would go until he went nine years. Nine years wait. That's both determination and the willingness to yield to God's will. Now, the last and sixth point is how to determine a field of service. And I won't be long here. Um, I would say as a rule of thumb, the best guide and the worst guide is your personal burden for a specific place. The reason I say that's the best guide and the worst guide is that very often it ends up to be the Lord putting that place on your heart and that's where you should go. And very often it turns out to not be the Lord warning you to go there. Let me give you some examples. Adoniram Judson intended to go to India but ended up in Burma. Robert Haldane was burning with a persistent desire to go to Bengal. But he ended up being the instrument of revival in Switzerland and France. David Livingston first offered himself for China, but ended up in Africa. And Robert Morrison, the first missionary to China, a great missionary to China, first inclined to go to Africa, but ended up in China. So don't worry about it. <laughs> there's, a, there's enough update all over the place. But you, there are some principles to follow if you have someone in, in your church who's saying, "But where should I go? Where is the need? And here I think we've got to be very careful as Reformed Baptists. Other groups and churches are really up on the information about the unreached people. We need to push a little bit farther in that direction ourselves to really become an association of churches that understands the hidden people's reality. Um, Did you know that 80% of missionaries... Are going to fields that are already evangelized. By that I mean uh, places that have over five percent evangelical Christian, and that's the the sort of uh, level at which the missiologists say the national church can now do the job. Whether or not that's really true, uh, it's 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 not so critical a need. Um, and I, and I think there's, one can question that, that sort of principle. But uh, 80% of missionaries to those places. And what about northern India, as, uh, as Gordon was speaking about? What about uh, Bhutan? What about some places in China? There's so, so many of these people groups. I admit those are scarier places to go to. But are we not men and women of faith? Uh, I've, I've wished many times that I was 21 years older again and I could choose uh, another field uh, and perhaps go to one of these places where no, no one, no one, no one has heard. What a privilege. What an incredible privilege. That the first time anyone in all, all this people has ever heard of Christ was from my lips. It's great. Well, then, where are there opportunities? Well, there, there are needs in some places where we can't always get to, but where are there opportunities? Where are you physically fit to serve? Do you have any prior language abilities? That may or may not be a deciding factor, but it should be considered. Do you have providential connections with a field or a people? Have you, have you grown up knowing a lot of Japanese and being really att- attracted to the Japanese? there are all these sorts of questions that can that can come in uh what is your desire what do you do, do the brethren in the church think where do they think you could best serve and so we just simply need to ask many questions on all these questions and inform ourselves and, and find out uh, what the possibilities are and certainly in one way or the other god uh, god will certainly lead his people but we'll stop there and uh Do we have time for questions?